I'm going to ask you to turn to Galatians 3 again this morning. Galatians 3, page 973. Nearly every single religion in the world teaches that attaining salvation, glorification, however they view it, comes somehow through being good, through keeping God's rules, however that is viewed. And in one sense, I think all of these understand intuitively what essentially is true. That is that only holy people enter into God's glory. But the Christian gospel alone teaches that salvation is ultimately not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by faith. Faith in the only one who ever lived a life of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to God. And it is that person that gets all the glory in Christianity. All the glory. The argument of Galatians is just that and can be summarized, I think, in three verses. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And he gave an illustration of that in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 6. He said, just like Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he argues further in chapter 3, verse 14, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. The problem, of course, was that In the churches that he established, there were false teachers who were coming along in his wake and were teaching them that it was the Jews alone who are God's children, the sons of Abraham that God promised to bless. And if you would be saved, you must become a convert to Judaism. You must be circumcised. You must keep the Mosaic law. And Paul argues back in this letter to the churches, trying to convince them of the truth of the Christian gospel. And he says, listen, you have missed the ultimate meaning of Abraham's offspring. I want to tell you what that really means. And he said further that you have misunderstood the place and the purpose of the Mosaic law. And so in chapter 3, verses 15 to 29, He's describing, he's he's, uh, expounding on the relationship between the law and the gospel as it is exhibited in promise form in the Old Testament. And he deals, first of all, with the place of the law in this history of salvation. How does the law come in? And he reminds them that the law was subsequent to the promise that God gave to Abraham and to his offspring and subservient to it, serving a different function from the promise, not to justify people, 
on the basis of their law-keeping. And then further, he says, secondly, he talks about the purpose of the law. Why did the law come in then? The purpose of the law, or one of the main purposes of the law in the plan of God, was to manifest and to multiply transgressions. That is to reveal man's innate sinfulness by giving a clear line that man is going to cross. And so, reveal him to be a sinner. To show him how wretched he is so that he will run to Christ for salvation. And that purpose was uniquely served by the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant that was given through angels, mediated by Moses, and made with Israel at Mount Sinai, whose terms were stated explicitly like this, if you obey, then you will live and be blessed. And if you disobey, then you will suffer the curse and you will die. That brings us then to chapter 3, verse 23, where he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. The third point that Paul really makes in this section, beginning in verse 15, and now from our text here, beginning in verse 23, is the passing of the law. He's talked about the place of the law, the purpose of the law, and now the passing of the law. And you can see from, if you just let your eyes scan down, beginning in verse 23 down to verse 29, especially 23, 24, 25, that area, that Paul is making a very historical kind of argument. Notice the terminology he uses. Verse 23, before faith came, until the coming faith. Verse 24, until Christ came. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Salvation history, in other words, is in the foreground here. He's speaking about a time period from the giving of the law until Christ came, right? The time from the giving of the law until Christ came. Now, there are various epochs in biblical salvation history. There was, as Romans chapter 5 says, the period between, quote, Adam and Moses, from Adam to Moses, from the fall, in other words, to the giving of the law. Then there is the period from Moses 
until Christ came, that Paul's talking about here. Then there is the period between Christ's first and second comings. And then finally, there is the consummation when Christ is revealed in all of His glory. Augustine, church father, referred to these as the period prior to the law, under the law, under grace, and in peace. Theologians have sometimes used the Latin term historia salutis, the history of salvation. This is what Paul has in the forefront, I think, of his view here. But I also want to point out that Paul sees this historical progression reflected in the progression of a person's individual salvation experience. So the same thing that God was unfolding in the history of Israel is also happening in microcosm in a way, especially in terms of the function of the law, in a person's individual salvation experience, what theologians sometimes call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation as as I experience it in, in my life. In verses 15 to 22, you take a look at that first section, uh, 15 to 22, before our text here, you see that Paul is doing a big contrast, right? We've been talking about this the last two weeks. And the contrast has been between the law and the promise, right? Promise is used seven times in that section. And when you get to verse 23, 23 through 29, the contrast is now between the law and faith. Faith is used five times here, promise only once. So there's kind of a shift in his terminology, and that's what I wanted to probe for a minute. Why this shift in terminology? Certainly there was faith before Christ came, right? We, we know that. He's just argued that. He just said Abraham was justified by faith. And now he's saying, now when faith came or when Christ came. So why, why shift the terminology here? And I think Probably a couple of things are going on. First, this is probably to indicate a major shift in salvation history from promise to now fulfillment, from type to antitype, from shadow to reality. The object of faith in the new covenant becomes much more clear now that reality has come now that Christ has come. But I think also, the reason he can use the terminology like this is that he sees, Paul sees, and I'm convinced of this, he sees salvation history reflected in a person's individual salvation experience. So, of course, in one sense, promise and faith are emphasizing kind of the same thing, right? What do you do with a promise? You... You believe it. You have faith in it, as opposed to the law, which you obey. And this is why in verse 22, the end of verse 22, he can use put these right together and say, it was the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, promise is more of a historical word. It's a word that looks forward to a fulfillment in the future. I make you a promise. You don't have the promise now. You might believe the promise, but you don't have the fullness of that promise until 
I bring it to pass. Whereas faith is much more of a personal word. It highlights an individual's response to the gospel, whereby the gospel becomes real for him and he is justified in the sight of God, right? So you have promise and faith. A person's individual experience of the law coming in to convict him and of the gospel coming in to relieve him, it is a reflection of the functions of the law and the promise in the history of salvation. Particularly, it's a reflection of the subordinate and the temporary function of the law. The law is not there ultimately to save. It's a means to an end, both personally and in the history of salvation. So this is so in verse 23, take a look again at verse 23. Paul can say, quote, before faith came, when he could have just said before Christ came or before the promised one came. After all, before faith came in verse 23 is equivalent to verse 22 or verse 24, before Christ came. This then is the link I think, that forges the connection between the gospel as freedom from the curse of the law on one hand, personally, the curse of the law with all of its condemnation, and on the other hand, freedom from the law as covenant with all of its ceremonial aspects. Both the condemnation aspect of the law personally and the ceremonies of the law covenantally and in terms of Israel's history were designed by God as temporary measures to lead people to whom? To Jesus Christ. Say it again, both the conviction of the law personally and the ceremonies of the law covenantally were designed as temporary measures to lead men ultimately to Christ. And I think these two all come together in Paul on on a couple of occasions at least. And I I think this is important because there are some interpreters of the Scripture, some advocates of a, quote, new perspective on Paul that see in Galatians only a reference to freedom from the law as a covenant. That is, freedom... Uh, from the law in all of its distinctions between Jew and Gentile. That's what they're focused on. They see only Paul talking about salvation history. And so for them, justification, the term justification is not a soteriological term. It doesn't have to do with salvation. It's an ecclesiological term. It's not about how a person gets right with God, but how we are right with each other. And so it blunts then the historic Reformation argument that a person is not ultimately saved by his works or justified before God on the basis of works. On the other hand, many Reformed people minimize any sense of historical progression. They view salvation history as very flat so that the New Covenant, the New Testament, is almost exactly the same as the Old Covenant, but just under a different administration. But Paul, I think, sees salvation 
a person's individual salvation experience as a reflection of Israel's salvation history. And in this section, verses 23 through 29, what I think is kind of in the foreground for him is he's talking about the temporary nature of the Mosaic law that was in force, quote, until Christ comes. He's speaking historically here. But in the background, of course, he sees this reflected in the experience of a person who comes under conviction by God's law until the coming of faith and Christ dawns upon him. He understands and believes the gospel at which he is delivered from the law's condemnation. So one, as I say, is being reflected in the other. And I think that's happening at least in in one other passage where maybe the emphasis is reversed, but both are in view, and that's Romans chapter 7. Think about this for a moment. Let me put it up on the screen. In Romans chapter 7, he speaks of his experience of personal conviction under the law, um, but that reflects the coming of the law into... History, when God gave the law in Moses. Notice the way he says in verse uh, 7, middle of verse 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Or I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, and now he's going to quote the Sinai covenant, particularly the 10th commandment here, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he goes on to say this, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, he's almost using the terminology of history, right? When God gave the commandments, but he's speaking in the personal sense, I died, sin came alive. So he sees the history of God's giving the commandments being reflected in his own life. He was once ignorant of his violation of God's commandments. But now that the law has dawned on him and he sees himself as a lawbreaker, he knows he needs um, a Savior. It was just like the giving of the Mosaic law in history brought a greater manifestation of Israel's sin and a sense of condemnation designed to drive them to the Messiah for their salvation. So Paul, in his own experience, has become aware of his own law-breaking and a greater sense of sin and condemnation has come upon him that has prepared him to receive God's salvation. So the function of the law then is temporary, and preparatory, both in history and now in his personal experience, it is a guardian until Christ comes, until faith comes. And in verses 23 and 24, now just kind of getting into the text here, he starts off by giving two illustrations of this temporary guardianship of the law. One illustration is of a prison guard. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive or guarded under the law, 
imprisoned or shut up together until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law, with its clear boundaries, thou shalt, thou shalt not, exposed men as the sinners that they always were. And like a jailer, it incarcerated them for their law-breaking, and it kept a watch over them there until Christ should come and set them free. I love the wording of this old commentator who put it this way. The law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape, but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. The law posts its ordinances like so many sentinels around the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. He tries again and again to break out but the iron circle will not yield. The deliverance will yet be his. The day of faith approaches. It dawned long ago in Abraham's promise. Even now the light shines into his dungeon, and he hears the word of Jesus, Thy sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Law, the stern jailer, has been, after all, a good friend if it has reserved him for this. It prevents the sinner escaping to a futile and elusive freedom. And what a futile and elusive freedom it is to seek for any kind of escape apart from the deliverance that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. What looks like freedom to a sinner, friends, you know so well, it's the way of death. It's the way of destruction. And he does everything he can to escape from the conviction that comes from being really exposed by the law of God. But the law, in the grace of God, the law is meant to keep him bound until he sees Christ. What a stern and blessed friend in disguise is the law with all of its threats and all of its judgments. I mentioned last week for some people, prison ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them, right? It's where their life was turned around because they finally, for the first time in their life, hit the bottom. And boy, that's the function of the law here. So would it be if the law temporarily broke you convicted you so that you might be healed and delivered and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So often, before a man is truly converted, so often this happens that he must go through a period of being humbled and being broken by the law. The law is always on the way to Christ. It's never ultimate. Remember that. Remember that with your children, right? Rules and commandments, punishments. They can civilize children. And don't get me wrong, children need to be civilized by the law. But Mr. Legality and Mr. Civility can never change a heart and really rid a pilgrim of his burden. So let's not equate just having civil children 
with Christianity. The law serves a purpose, a temporary measure in youth to point a man to his sin first of all, but then ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law is a prison guard. And then there's a second illustration in verse 24. The law is like, um, I don't know the way, really the best way to say it, a, a babysitter, a nanny, a chaperone, a minor guardian. Verse 24, so then the law was our, ESV has guardian. The word is pedagogue. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This pedagogue was a person in ancient days who would assist, um, who, who would be assigned rather to um, look after a child, to look after a child until that child came of age. Then you don't need the babysitter, you don't need the chaperone, the nanny, the guardian any longer. But that guardian had a purpose. He would take care of those children in their, in their youth, teach them morals and manners, administer punishments, and accompany them to school, make sure they learn their lessons. And Paul's using that kind of terminology to illustrate the function of the law for the people of Israel. Under the law, with its types and shadows and its sacrifices and its ceremonies, Israel was a child. Even though he was the heir of the Abrahamic promise, he was a child. And as chapter 4, verse 1 says, if you look just down to the next chapter, an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So his guardian, for a time, was also his master. Circumcision was non-negotiable. Israel was under the jurisdiction of the law, bound by the law. Circumcision was a non-negotiable. Complete obedience was demanded or else you were under a curse. But like any pedagogue, the law eventually worked its way out of a job, so to speak. And when the child comes of age, it doesn't need the, the guardian anymore doesn't need constant supervision. Verse 25, Paul goes on to say, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You are all sons of God. Sons of God through faith. Now that the child has come of age, in other words, he's no longer like a slave. He's publicly acknowledged now as the son and heir. And so the point of the guardian, his job is finished. With the coming of Jesus Christ, in other words, salvation history moves from promise, the era of promise, to the era of fulfillment. And Christians in this age have received full sonship from God. With Christ's resurrection, we are publicly granted our inheritance as sons. Now, we don't fully possess it. There's an already and a not yet. We don't fully possess it until Christ returns and we experience our revelation 
the redemption of our bodies, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But we have right now received the Spirit who is the guarantee of our possession until we acquire possession of it, the guarantee of our inheritance, that is. Romans chapter 8. Before Christ's resurrection and His enthronement, John says the Spirit had not yet been given. But now that Christ is raised and seated on His throne, the age of fulfillment has dawned, not yet consummated but fulfilled in a manner greater than under the guardian. The Spirit is given. The sons come into their own. They are openly acknowledged as possessors of the inheritance. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That language has not only personal implications, but historical implications. A new age has dawned. Christ is on His throne. The resurrected glorified Son of Man sits on the throne. How can it be the same? The children of God have grown up. The law has done its job. And so we are no longer, as Paul says in other places, no longer under law, but under grace. Now I have to add quickly that that doesn't mean that the moral commands of the law are now irrelevant to us. That it's kind of like, do whatever you want or only what the New Testament tells you to do or whatever. There are eternal, eternal moral principles included in the Mosaic Law, which reveal the timeless character of God, the unchanging nature and reveal His moral will which never vacillates. The moral law written in men's hearts preceded the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, and it's in force after its abrogation. The Ten Commandments continue to be a guide for believers to live lives of love for God. This is the third use of the law. It shows you what it looks like to live a life that's pleasing to God. We'll look, we'll see this when we get to chapter five of Galatians where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and he says, against such there is no law. The law shows us what it looks like to live according to the Spirit. So it's not that the law has no, um, uh, value for us. Rather, this means that we are not under law as a covenant. We are rather under the new covenant. And the covenant always defines the community. And under the new covenant, the people of God, excuse me, under the old covenant, the people of God were marked off and set apart from the Gentiles. By what? Circumcision, the food laws, the sacrifices and the ceremonies that were unique to those those people. These things created a kind of dividing wall that kept the Jews distinct. 
until the coming of Christ. It was the Jews, the circumcision, who were the children of God. But now that Christ has come, the law that divides is broken down. And as he says here, we are all sons of God through faith. The offspring of Abraham. How is that? By virtue of our union, our incorporation into Christ, who is that singular offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is, and this is the explanation for what precedes how verse 26, in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. So baptism, he says, is an act of faith whereby we are united to Christ. In baptism, we put on Christ. We are immersed into Christ. We are clothed in Christ and all of His righteousness. Not that baptism itself saves, but baptism as an act of faith. That faith that is the ground for our justification before God. So the law that divided Jew from Gentile in the time of the church's infancy, has passed away as a covenant. And now in verse 28, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? You see this historical shift now? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I have to also sort of pause here and just, you know, say that here is a verse which uh, has been, a, attempts have been made to use this verse to provide um, arguments for very unbiblical things. So, this is a classic example or illustration of using scripture out of context, right? In Christ, there is no male and female. It's used to downplay the Bible's teaching, both the Old and New Testament, about gender roles. In Christ, there is no male or female. Today, it's even been used to promote the LGBTQ agenda. Reading just this week, a talk that a woman gave at uh, Yale or someplace. A former graduate of Bob Jones University, believe it or not. Uh, A, uh, well... Uh, but but the, the arguments are being made that that this verse is is a justification for that kind of agenda. And, and it's just a reminder of the old adage that a text taken out of context is a pretext for whatever you want to believe. What is Paul arguing in context? He's talking about the passing of the law, the passing nature of the Mosaic covenant with its right of circumcision and the laws that distinguish the children of Abraham from the Gentiles. And with the coming of Christ, he says there is no more Jew and Greek. There is no more slave 
or free. There's no more male or female in terms of being a part of the new covenant people of God. Under the types and shadows of the law, a person's connection to a male descendant of Abraham made them a part of the children of God. Females who belonged to a Jewish man, as his wives or his daughters, were a part of Israel. Slaves who belonged to a Jewish man were circumcised, became a part of Israel. And Gentiles, outsiders, had no inheritance in the land of blessing unless they became Jews. But he's saying that now that Christ has come, all of those who are baptized into Him by faith, whether females or slaves or Gentiles, are incorporated into Christ in their own right. And here then is the conclusion of all of this logic. Verse 29, it's kind of where he started this whole project. If you are Christ's then, if you are united to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring. You are incorporated, in other words, into that one single offspring, Christ, that was the referent of the promise. And if that's true, then here's the final bit of logic, then you are heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. That promise was made to the offspring who is Christ. If you are baptized into Christ, united to Him in faith, then you are an inheritor of the promise, of the blessing of God. The eternal blessing of God in the perfect land of rest that foreshadowed foreshadowed our heavenly eternal home and the new heavens and the new earth. The bottom line is this, that Christ is absolutely everything for Christians. Amen? It's, it's a scheme of religion, if you will, designed by God for the ultimate glorification and, and glory and credit of His Son. Everything that would be saved will be saved in Christ and through Christ. In Christ alone, we are part of God's promised line. We are His children. We are heirs of everlasting life. Every promise finds its fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. His is the land. His is the blessing. His is eternal life in glory. And it is yours if and only if you are incorporated into Jesus Christ by faith. Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you come to a point where under the conviction of the law, you know that there is no more making excuses for yourself or attempting to justify yourself in the sight of God? Has the law done its good work? That work that was setting the ground. Now, you've come to say, Christ, you are everything. You who fulfilled the law. You who kept 
God's purposes in every respect. Oh Lord, I need you. Lord Jesus, save me. You express this faith in baptism, seeking to be united to Jesus Christ. Is your identity in Christ? You know, it's a strange thing that that some people who call themselves Christians would seek to identify themselves by something other than Christ. Christ is everything for a Christian. It is futile to say, well, I'm from a certain family, so I must be God's child. Or I'm a pretty good person. I try to keep, you know, do the best I can, so I hope that I'm going to be acceptable to God and I'll be saved. There is only one claim that really has any hope at all. And that is my hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we honor and glorify Jesus Christ together today. For this is your design. And this is our only salvation. What a joy it is to come together, none of us bragging in our own background, our own heritage, our own upbringing, or our own morality, our own religious ritual. But for every one of us, Lord, our, our boast, you know this, is in Christ. And uh, Lord, I, I say every one of us, but I, you know the hearts. And there are perhaps some among us who who are living simply a life of external morality, Lord, I pray that you would bring your law to bear and that you would draw them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. pray that even today you would cause them to have eyes that have been opened, that you would save sinners and strengthen your saints. I pray it in Jesus' name.